This is the Behind Enemy Lines podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the inside track on Liverpool FC's next opponents. Hello, it's Paul Wheelock and welcome to the Behind Enemy Lines podcast to get the lowdown on Liverpool's next opponents, Manchester United. The two most successful clubs in English football go head-to-head at Old Trafford on Sunday afternoon with plenty more than just pride at stake. An 18th consecutive victory for Liverpool would equal Manchester City's Premier League record and more importantly, re-establish their eight-point lead at the top after the defending champions won at Crystal Palace on Saturday night. Victory for Jurgen Klopp's relentless side at the home of their biggest rivals would also underline the huge gap in quality that now exists between the clubs. Just two seasons ago, United finished six points ahead of Liverpool in second, but since then the clubs have gone in completely different directions and United will go into this match a massive 15 points behind Liverpool and with the pressure growing on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. So to find out how and why the Red Devils have suffered such a huge fall in grace, I picked up the phone to one of the reporters who knows the club best. Samuel Luckhurst is the Chief Manchester United Correspondent for the Manchester Evening News and over the next half an hour, he offers a fascinating insight into exactly what is going on at Old Trafford. I really enjoyed speaking to Samuel and I hope you enjoy it too. And we'll be back after the match with the post-game podcast. Behind Enemy Lines on the Blood Red Channel. Well, hi Samuel. Thank you very much for joining me on this podcast to talk all things Manchester United ahead of Sunday's game against Liverpool. How are you keeping? Very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on again. No, pleasure. The last time we spoke, uh, I think United were in the middle of that remarkable run of form that culminated with the victory in Paris and, and included the nil-nil draw, draw with Liverpool at Old Trafford. What's happened since? Because back then it looked like a new era for Manchester United. The form, as I mentioned there, was great. But since kind of around that time, everything seems to have gone wrong. It, it really has spiralled quite spectacularly. Uh, the, the ground was was rocking that day against Liverpool. It was it was a dire game, as it often is between United and Liverpool. But the fact that they came through those three first-half injuries and got a pretty commendable draw, uh, everyone was, was quite buoyant about the place uh, because they, they won this very good run under Solskjaer. I think they'd only lost one game under him up until that point. And then you had the next three games, which they... They won, uh, but it climaxed in Paris, and that's kind of like the has been the start of the, where it's all unravelled. Um, although I think later that week, when they lost two 0 at Arsenal, I think a lot of United fans would probably say that was that was the last team they sorry the last time they actually played properly well for a large portion of a game, and you have to go back to to early March for that. It, it, it really is difficult to pinpoint just why it has gone wrong. Um, I think the interesting thing that nobody's really touched upon is that when Louis van Gaal uh, gave an interview, a very lengthy interview to the BBC back in March, he touched upon Solskjaer being a park for bus manager, but a winning park for bus manager. And nobody did really kind of realise that he only has one tactic, which is the counter-attack. And a lot of clubs that United have come up against have, have got wise to it and... I think the last time they scored, it was a counter-attacking goal, but it's against Arsenal, Arsenal or Arsenal. If you play in a certain way against United, you're not going to lose against them because they are that one-dimensional. Um, the, the nadir of the Solskjaer reign really was, was Goodison in, in April, where I think he realised, he said recently, some players weren't playing for the shirt, weren't giving their all. I think it was pretty clear who, he was referring to Lukaku that day. I think Lukaku was getting a bit of stick from the the, um, 
the Everton fans in the second half and was more focused on trying to have an on-running battle with yes. them than um, you know trying to get United uh, back in the game, which which was just never going to happen. But the fact of the matter is of that the team that started that game, he's the only one who's been sold. Chris Smalling has been loaned out, and you can accuse Chris Smalling of a number of things, but he, he's always given his all, I think. And obviously in the summer, the recruitment was slow. It was an unfulfilling window. They ended it without two priority targets. That was absolutely key and, and just utterly negligent as well. Their strategy in the summer was so peculiar in that they operated at a one-at-a-time approach. So they would sign Daniel James. They would move on to Aaron Wan-Bissaka. They'd spend over a month negotiating on that deal. Then it was on to Harry Maguire. That took over a month as well. And when things like that happen, people obviously theorise, well, did Maguire only get signed off because you knew Lukaku was finally going Mm -hmm. and you were getting the money off into Milan? The net spend was not particularly high. I think it was about £63 million, which is very modest for a team who needed major reinforcements in the summer. And, of course, Solskjaer's tried to get them fitter. He's tried to make them a more, more of a pressing side, which was evident during that honeymoon period. But for all the talk on pre-season in um, Australia and, and Asia what, that we were getting from the club and talking to the pe- relevant people, They've, they've had a, another spate of muscle injuries. They've probably had more injuries than goals this season. <laughs> and that just kind of sums it all up, really. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. And it's gone wrong before, you know, just, just as the leaves are dropping to the ground in autumn. Yeah, it's not good at all. And we, we will come on in a minute to the more wider problems at the club. But Solskjaer himself, I know he'll always be adored by United fans for what he did for the club as a player, and, and understandably so. But is he or should he be under pressure? Uh, he definitely should be under pressure. Uh, the, the results he's overseen, uh, you, you, the, the demands of that job, the expectation that comes with it. Um, I mean, whatever way you look at it, it's just horrendous. I think it's five wins in regulation time in the last 23 um, across all competitions. That that really is relegation form. Uh, his refusal to drop certain players. Now, I know the obvious excuse that he, he's reached for is, well, I've had no choice but to play Marcus Rashford. That, that's not entirely true. He, he could have started Mason Greenwood in a league game. He's not chosen to do that, uh, which hints at a lack of bravery from a manager who, ironically, was talking up playing young players, playing academy players. But it has got to that point where it's pretty clear that certain academy players who've come into the first-team squad They've not necessarily earned that first team promotion. They're they're just in there out of necessity. Um, There was talk of some maybe going on loan in in January, but United just cannot spare the numbers at the moment. And and that just seems unforeseeable. And whether he likes it or not, I mean, obviously what what he says in public is going to be very different to how he's thinking and what he's saying to, to Ed Woodward and the Glazers privately. But a little bit like Mourinho at the start of when he was manager, he, he was hitting all the right notes. He chimed with supporters. Now, in a press conference, if you tweet out something Solskjaer has said, you're just going to wind up United fans on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And that always hints that, you know, the end game might be imminent here. Um, United are absolutely desperate to back him because it, I, I can't quite repeat the, the quote Malcolm Tucker gave in the thick of it, but he kind of, what what he gets at is that he says if the prime minister sacks you 
after a week, it looks like he's mm-hmm. cocked up. Yeah. If he sacks you after 10 months, then you're the one who's cocked up. And even though the time frame is obviously very different, but if United were to dismiss Solskjaer now or next month, or maybe even before Christmas, given what Ed Woodward said on the last conference call, when he actually addressed matters head on rather than, you know, shying away from them or, or waiting for questions from the odd investor who actually might ask him a football question, then it's just going to reflect horrendously on him, even though he is bulletproof, uh, because he has got a reputation to uphold. He is the de facto director of football. He's the one who who deals with the football figures at all the other clubs across Europe. And, yeah, I mean, he, he shouldn't be doing the job he is doing. He should be just concentrating on commercial matters. But they're not going to appoint a director of football Anytime soon, it doesn't look like. Uh, they've been talking about this for, for 10 months now. Uh, it, it shouldn't take 10 months to appoint someone who's qualified for that role. But that's the position they're in. And I think the, the pity for Solskjaer is that, as hypothetical as it sounds, they've, they've got Liverpool on Sunday. I don't think many people would be expecting them to win that game. I think you'd be certifiable, in fact, to think they could, would even win. And then it's four away games on the spin they're winless away from home in 11. Say they don't win any of those games. And then it's it's pretty much 10 games without a win. And I don't, I mean, I was looking for the stat. I don't remember the last time. It's certainly not happened in my lifetime. United have gone 10 games without a win. And at that point, you think, well, that's untenable. And just a point of principle, this manager has to go because you cannot tolerate that. And there are legitimate doubts about him as a manager, Um the, the formation has changed through this season. United are far too rigid. It doesn't suit them. Um, he, he's moved Pogba back into a, a midfield axis when he probably played the best club football of his career under Solskjaer in the midfield three. Injuries ob- obviously influence his thinking in certain areas. Uh, but this this idealism, this uh, bubble of optimism he, he lives within, it, it, it's just not working. That, that bubble was pricked a long time ago. And... Although he is the prop, he is a problem. Sorry, uh, at United, I think the bigger picture is he's not the problem. The problem is still the ownership, and it is still Ed Woodward. Yeah, I can remember when we spoke back in February time. We we touched on the sporting director, and I know you've you've discussed it at length on the the latest Manchester's Red podcast as well. Why is it taking so long to to appoint a sporting director? Probably in the vein of someone like Michael Edwards at Liverpool. I genuinely think there's a reluctance from Woodward to to take to, to relinquish his role, if you like. He, he isn't the director of football, but he, he kind of is in his own mind, and he does like the image of it um, of going from country to country. I mean, back in back four years ago, when he got on a flight to Barcelona, and everyone thought. He was he was going over there to finalise the Pedro deal when in actuality he went there to see if, if Neymar wanted to join Manchester United, which just sounds <laughs> sounds ludicrous, but that's that's what he was going to explore. And I mean a, a former colleague of mine, um, Kieran Kelly, who's now at the Newcastle Chronicle, he, he did a piece on, on Woodward where uh, he, he touched base with someone who used to work at United and the the, the, the source he spoke to got wanted to get the okay from Woodward to speak about him and he did the piece went out and the crux of the piece essentially was United might already have a director of football i.e. Woodward and it got back to my colleague from his source that Woodward was 
pleased with the piece. He'd read it, he liked it. And that gives you an indication of mm-hmm. how he sees his role there. Um, he's never going to publicly pretend to be a director of football, but he just he, he just likes that, that side of the game. And I think there has been an awful lot of um, bluster about it. I mean, it, it first emerged when they sacked Mourinho that they wanted a director of football, but it was called a head of football then. And the word from United was that Mourinho didn't want to work with one, which didn't, wasn't a surprise to anybody because he'd fallen out with director of, director of football at his previous clubs like Valdano at Madrid and Eminalo at Chelsea. And then it gets to March and it's going to be called a technical director and United are saying they're, you know, they're confident of appointing one. They hope to have one in, in time for the start of the new season. And then, of course, it, 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 it became very apparent very early in the summer that they would not be appointing one before the start of the season. And then last month on the investors' call, Woodward actually referred to it as a head of football again. So the fact they're not even being consistent with this job title that is still unoccupied, again, it just kind of sums up the whole thinking um, behind it. And I, I think a, a colleague of mine, I think he was the only one who did the post-transfer window story about how United will switch their search to a technical director again now that the window's closed. And I saw United fans on Twitter and United fans I know who were telling me before the window closed, like, oh, I'm, I'm sure you'll get a technical director line when we've not signed a strike on deadline day. And then obviously somebody goes and writes it and you don't blame them for, for writing it because it's been um, relayed to them in good faith. But United fans understandably are very cynical um, about that particular strategy there. And, and Solskjaer has come out and told Gary Neville that the, the structure is right at the club. I think they feel as though the way they conducted business in the summer uh, was very smooth. And I mean, Woodward, they, they are trying to change, not change his role, but certainly protect him a little bit more in that uh, it's the head of corporate development, Matt Judge. He's the one who negotiates with clubs for signings and then the deals are signed off by Woodward which is true, that that is Judge's role, but it does feel like the fact that they're trying to get that out there, they're trying to you know, take Woodward out of the firing line. And when it comes to investors' calls now, he's not the one who talks about the guff like the app rating or the YouTube subscribers list or what their social media following is, because you know, quite understandably, the director of communications thinks it, it reflects badly for the supposed football figure at the club to be talking about that stuff when it should be someone who is, is strictly on the commercial side who should be speaking about um, those details. So there are tweaks like that, but ultimately we're, we're still here and United haven't got a director of football. And let's make no bones about it. You go back to not even 18 months ago, United were comfortably above Liverpool in the yeah. league, but that 2018 summer was so, so significant for I don't think you can call it a rivalry at the moment because Liverpool are so superior, but Liverpool backed their manager to the hilt. They had a director of football in, in Edwards. Um, United refused to back a manager six months after they gave him a new contract and they were without a director of football. United finished second and bought pretty much to finish fourth next season. Liverpool finished fourth and bought to become champions and they probably would have, but for one of the greatest club sides England's ever produced. 
Agreed. It was a really interesting piece. I read it on the, the website myself this week. Do you think, even though we're only talking two summers ago, do you think the gap now has become so big that it's going to take years and years for United to, to get their way back to Liverpool and, and, and Manchester City's level in a similar way that happened to Liverpool in the 90s when United were the top dogs? It, it's interesting what Jamie Carragher said after United lost to West Ham last month when he said sometimes it just takes one or two players to change your fortunes drastically. And he, he referred to the impact Suarez had in the 2013-14 season when, I mean, really Liverpool should have won the league. But the, diff, the, the caveat with that was that Suarez had been there three years, I think. They signed mm-hmm. him in January 2011. It, it, he didn't just become um, totemic overnight. I, I think in his, his second season, you know, there were a lot of, um, you know, skills or incidents where he almost scored where he'd hit the crossbar or the woodwork and there were almost there were so many great goals that that, that could have been but didn't it was only in that 2012-13 season where I think he really you know he started to see he morphed the, into the world class player isn't he? Yeah, absolutely absolutely um, United do not have that luxury um, and, and if you're going off that time frame with Suarez you're thinking, well, that player could come in now, but it's going to be, what what year are we in now? 2019. It's going to be 2022. That they're going to make things happen at United, possibly. And that provided that the structure's right, that the ownership's right, um, that the manager is right, that the, the players around them are right. It's it, and, and Suarez, that, that, was, that, that does feel like an anomaly. I think from United's perspective, you know, somebody, you, you could argue, well, Cantona was the catalyst. Yes, he was, but he still, as Ferguson always said, he was kind of like the last last piece of the jigsaw mm-hmm. there and that you had Mark Hughes up front, you had Brian Robson in midfield, Paul Ince, Ryan Giggs was the best young player in the country at that time. They'd signed Schmeichel, who was European Championship winning goalkeeper. Bruce and Pallister, of course, Irwin and Parker as the fullbacks. You know, his first team, his first great team was almost complete and it was completed with Cantona in 92 and then Roy Keane in 93. And that's that's why I kind of feel sorry for the young players at United at the moment that's come through the academy because people keep on going on about this class of 92 comparison. But you go back to that summer of 95 when Ince Konchelskis and um, Hughes left United and obviously the class 92 came in on a full-time basis if you like but by that point I think Gary Neville had played in the FA Cup final Nicky Butter played in the FA Cup semi-final Skulls had played in the FA Cup final uh, Phil Neville had played in a Manchester derby on his debut apart from Phil Neville that lot were all in their 20s mm-hmm. and they'd already accrued impressive experience and played for most of the 94-95 season before they did the double in 95-96. So the comparison is completely moot. So it it does really feel like um, a Liverpool style to know that they had in the 90s where they weren't quite sure what, what direction they were going in. They made some atrocious signings that were completely unbecoming of the, the great club that they are and certainly the, the hegemony they enjoyed in the 70s and 80s. Um, and I think the the galling thing for United is that one man's ego has kind of you know, ruined all of this. Yeah. And the irony of that is is Ferguson in that in 2013, with Pep Guardiola committed to Bayern Munich, the obvious candidate to 
bring in as manager and to make it serene transition was Mourinho because the landscape was just right for Mourinho to ride roughshod over. Wenger's Arsenal were no longer a threat. Rodgers was a year in at Liverpool and nobody was expecting them to come anywhere near to even challenge him for the league that season. Pellegrini was new in at City and Mourinho had his number in Spain from when they came up against each other. I think if you put Mourinho into if you parachuted Mourinho in and he did want the job as well um, with that squad, he'd have insisted on three or four strong signings and it really wouldn't have surprised me if United won the league and then you're maintaining that um, you know, that winning feeling and then three years down the line when obviously it's time for a managerial change, you've got good players in, they're still winning things and it, it feels a little bit more serene and you can maybe go for a younger manager or more up-and-coming manager. Um, but Ferguson inexplicably went with Moyes and th- that was just destined to fail. Behind Enemy Lines on the Blood Red Channel. It's very interesting when you place it into that historical context to, to how United have, have come to find where they are today. And, and just some of the names you were mentioning there from the players in the 90s, Liverpool fans around there would have grown up probably disliking them, but mainly because they were so good. And you compare the team to those teams to the United of, of today, and, and, and there is no comparison at all. But let's focus on the players for a moment. Are they a middle-of-the-table squad or are they just not performing at the moment? I genuinely think if if they get sick, if they finish sick, um, that that might be uh, that might reflect rather flatteringly on them. Um, I think certain players who the jury was still out on just out of politeness at the start of the season, the, the verdict's come in is pretty damning now. Uh, Fred just does not have the mentality of a Manchester United player. The fact that I was told by. Um, someone who who worked with him uh, in, in June that he was getting married in July and he'd spoken to Gilberto Silva, who he, his mentor is, and he just seemed that United would be okay with that, you know, that he can go away for two weeks and get married. And I I, I didn't run it as a story because I thought he, he got married last year, didn't he? I mean, the, and there is an Instagram post of him that looks like he got married last year, but maybe it wasn't the full ceremony. Yet the fact that he think he thought that he could book two weeks off in July in the the second week of pre-season, just as United were flying out to Perth for their pre-season tour to get married, just that was at the point where United maybe should have just cut the cord out of out of principle. But mm-hmm. they they spent fifty two million pounds on this player, and that was a surprise. Really, I think the more you see Fred, the more you look at him, and you think, what did Mourinho see in him? Because he's the most on Mourinho player um, as a midfielder that, that you could ever imagine. Um, Andres Pereira, Solskjaer doesn't do him any favours by referring to him as Andy in press conferences. I think the, Eng- the guys who covered England back when Steve McLaren was coach, they, they remarked how he would refer to players by their nicknames, mm-hmm. not just on the training pitch, but in press conferences. And that chumminess really doesn't do managers any favours. Uh, and he doesn't do the players any favours. In Pereira's case, Solskjaer's tried to make a right winger out of him, and all he's done is just confirm what everybody knew a long time ago, which is he is not good enough. The punchline is that United gave him a four-year contract in the summer. Um, the defence looks reasonably uh, is, is reasonably okay. They, they need a left back next year because Luke Shaw can 
just can't be trusted with his fit, poor fitness um, up front. Again, as, as as maddening as Lukaku could be for United fans, he was by far and away their most reliable goal scorer um, last season. Rashford was apparently revived and Lukaku was slow and sluggish, which he was, but slow, sluggish Lukaku still outscored Rashford. He's the one who was sold. Lukaku had a poor season. He didn't want to be at United. I completely understand why United got rid of him. Um, That was a completely correct decision, but they didn't replace him. And if you don't replace him, then your goals currency is is only going to go down. Uh, So again, poor thinking, um, on, on the board's behalf there. And there are other players like Matic who, I mean, he, he might have to play against Liverpool out of necessity. And I mean, if, if he does, it, 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 the way he runs now, he's like moving through quicksand. Uh, he, he had a very good start at United, but, and again, like a number of players in the Solskjaer purple patch, he actually performed but he's passed it. I think he'll probably be released at the end of the season, even though they could take up the option of an additional year on his contracts. McTominay is a, is a decent, honest player, but he shouldn't be a United first teamer. He he is kind of like a you know a subpar Darren Fletcher, but you can't really fault him because he is giving his all and he's playing. You know he knows his ceiling. Everyone knows his ceiling, but because they didn't sign a midfielder in the summer, um, he has to be a starter. So it, it's not really a threadbare squad as people think there is quantity there but it's been quantity over quality for a long long time at United and they just weren't aggressive enough in the recent window you look at the spending spree Real Madrid went on and that was just on the back of a bad season in the league when they'd collected what four of the last five mm-hmm. European Cups um it's it's it might not work for Real Madrid this season. Um, it's you know Zidane's had his issues there already, and they're, they're not looking too um, too stable in the Champions League group stage. But the intention was there to you know, change that squad to strengthen it because they realised that the previous squad had, had come to the end of the line there, where Ronaldo left. Whereas at United, it was again it was just unfulfilling. And Mourinho's last summer window, he wanted five players, he got three. Solskjaer wanted five players this summer and he got three. So when you're repeating your mistakes, it's it's pretty clear that the structure is wrong. Everything we've talked about on this podcast and, this, you know, you only have to look at the table, the form table, everything suggests to Liverpool win on Sunday. But Liverpool supporting supporters in this office alone have said that that's, that's, there's also reason to be wary. If you actually look at Liverpool's recent record at Old Trafford, it's, it's pretty poor. I think they've not won in any of the last six visits to the ground. Do, do you see that? Do you think, despite the, the, the situation the club finds itself in, despite the injuries that De Gea and Pogba are out, maybe United could rouse themselves on Sunday and, and actually take some points off this kind of relentless Liverpool team? It really wouldn't surprise me. I, I said to colleagues before the Newcastle game, I had more faith in United getting a commendable result against Liverpool than I did against Newcastle. I, I just didn't think United would win at Newcastle as, as soon as we reported the squad on the Saturday night. But over the last 20 months or so, they have claimed a lot of prize scouts uh, domestically and in Europe. Obviously, they, they beat Liverpool just over 18 months ago uh, at Old Trafford. I think they've beaten... Obviously, Juventus, PSG, uh, Tottenham early this year, Arsenal and Chelsea earlier this year as well. 
Um, there was a city comeback. So during this this period of just under two years, they've they've turned it on in quite a lot of big games. They've also been abysmal in a lot of big games, such as the the Anfield one in December last year. Um, but they rallied against Liverpool in February. I think that the, the atmosphere, the, the ground should be pretty good as well. I know that these games can be pretty abysmal at times. We've had a, some, some terrible nil-nils in, in recent years between United and Liverpool. But the United supporters accept that Solskjaer is not the problem there. They've, they've been, you know, the anti-glazer ch- chance has started the last couple of away games. Um, even when Moyes got tonked 3-0 in, in March 2014 I think it was there was an atmosphere of defiance then and as you say it's it's peculiar to think that Liverpool started this century uh, with, with such a remarkable record at Old Trafford with three Neil Danny Murphy wins out of four but I think this decade they've literally won once at United and that was when when Moyes was in charge um, United have been have been pretty good against them so that that is that's some cause for optimism, but uh, I, I think records like that are pretty pretty meaningless when you you look at how United's been playing recently. But again, it, it wouldn't. I, I've no confidence in United getting a win whatsoever. But I wouldn't be surprised if they eke out a, a spirited draw, much like how they did under Van Gaal when it looked like it was come to the end of him, uh, end for him. Um, Back in 2015, when they lost at, at Stoke on Boxing Day, it was four defeats in a row. But it was his good fortune there. The game two days later against Chelsea, and they played pretty well. Should have won, but it ended up drawing nil-nil. And fans came away thinking, well, you know, the, the players haven't completely jacked it in. They are still trying, and he's going to limp on to the next game. And he he eventually saw out the season. So th- th- there is some hope for Solskjaer yet. Samuel, well, thanks very much for that insight into uh, United. It's, it's fascinating stuff, and I'm sure Liverpool fans will be very interested in, in listening to it because th- this rivalry, you know, there's no getting away from it. We noticed it from uh, the stories that we do on the sites. This is forever interesting what each club are doing, isn't it, really? It is. Uh, despite what City have achieved in, in recent years, I think the, the vast, vast majority of United sports would, would always consider Liverpool to be the main rivals it's not just a generational thing. I think the the geography, the the history of the cities, everything about it, um, it, it just ticks every box in terms of that that tribalism. And it's it's two great cities as well. Uh, I mean, for the first time, I actually bothered to to visit Liverpool City Centre properly in the summer, and I was just struck by what an amazing city it is. So uh, hopefully, it won't be another nil nil. You've been listening to the Agenda Podcast on the Blood Red Channel.